Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. Hope everyone's doing wonderful. Matt, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm awake. awake. It's a new year. Mm. We'll call it good. How about yourself, Justin? Yeah, things are super duper, I suppose. So we're recording this January 2nd. And yeah, things have kicked off with a bang. I was just telling Matt, Katie, I'm surprised isn't on fire right now because of all the fireworks. If you live in Katie, correct me if I'm wrong, but this year was insane on the fireworks situation. Matt, you were just talking, you live in their city. So how was it there? You learn to be able to distinguish between gunshots and fireworks a little better inside the city, and it was mostly fireworks. Okay. It was just surprising. Like, there's not that many clearings. Like, yeah, we have a couple of wild neighbors that it would be like the intersection of two very busy streets. They'd like run out between cars and set stuff off. <laughs> it was loud for a while. Yeah. And you know, when it starts to die down, you're like, oh, I can finally go back to sleep. And then yeah. like somebody else is like, hey, now I've got a really time. big one. <laughs> yeah. So that's funny. Actually, speaking of your first comment, there about gunshots and fireworks. My brother-in-law and his wife got their first home and they bought a place in the fifth ward. And it's on a street that there's some newer houses and it's close to I-10, but still it's in an area where that could also be questioned. And Mm -hmm. so we were enjoying the festivities and they have a dog. So we'd take the dog outside sometimes. And there was definitely some interesting fireworks, which could have been gunshot. Like this doesn't sound like Katie fireworks. And it was like, pow, 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 pow. Okay, well, we could be in the crosshairs here, but hopefully not. People are celebrating uh, however you celebrate it. Hopefully it was safe. And I was telling Matt, I burned my hand real bad last year. This year I got a nice lighter to light the sparklers. Our kids aren't fond of the loud noises, but they love sparklers and smoke Mm. bombs. So anyway, it was a good time and excited for 2024. What about you, Matt? Are you fired up for the year or what's your thoughts? I think I'm a little recharged. I think I'm a little wound up. I already got a big list of things to get done. And a lot of it's work stuff. It's good stuff, but like we got some paper for the upcoming AD Fluids Conference. The conference is until April, but like the papers are due in February. It's going to come So like can't sleep on that, you know, just Mm. things like that. And then hopefully it's a good sign, but we had a lot of meetings in December with customers, which, so you have these meetings, which is great because you're thinking ahead and that sort of thing. But there's also sort of an implication that you're going to check back in early January, which meant kind of, okay, well, late December, there's more to do than usual. And there was a lot of mopping up to do at the end of the year, but like now I'm like, okay, we did it all. Yeah. Let's see what's time. next. Yeah. But I don't want to kill myself either. <laughs> yeah. You can't come out of the gate too hot. Yeah, exactly. You got you to pace yourself because you want to maintain that level of intensity throughout the year. It's a marathon. That's right. I was going to say it, but you took it right out of my mouth. Not a sprint. I'm excited for the year with regards to drilling activity. Um, you know, I, I don't see like a major ramp up. So hopefully it's like we can own in on what we do well and fine tune some things. And what do you think, Matt? Are you think it's going to be a crazy busy year? Knowing what you know now and not trying to project oil prices, but where do you think things are going? Oh man, what I don't get is the rig count stayed pretty flat in spite of everything that's going on in the Middle East, mm-hmm. you know, there was a bit of a bump with like the war in Ukraine, but like the geopolitical risk of the Red Sea lanes. I suggest you educate yourself on this if you're listening, because it's complicated and there's a lot of different viewpoints to it, but you've got what's going on in Israel and Gaza 
But obviously, Iran is tied to some of that, and they're also tied to the Houthis in Yemen. This is something that very measured, but like could escalate very rapidly in ways that I don't think everybody's accounted for, which is called geopolitical risk. Yeah. And there's always some flavor of it, but normally oil prices respond because important markets are in question and like we didn't see much. It's a head scratcher to me because where the price of oil is headed could be an event that we can't plan for, like a geopolitical event, Mm -hmm. just as much as a recession could send things the other way or what have you. But there's a lot of stuff going on in the world right now that wasn't last year. Yeah. But even when we've had flare-ups, you didn't see like a economic behavioral response like you would expect yeah. in the past. So I guess that's my big head scratcher is I'm not necessarily one of those guys who's going to go around and say, oh yeah, you know, supplies are going to be dwindling because of decline curves and all that. Like yeah. some of that stuff's true, but none of that narrative lived out last year. So why try and tell the same story again? <laughs> yeah. But there's these other things that just don't seem to make any sense where at some point something's either going to be squeezed or what have you in ways that we've gotten very comfortable not having those stressors. Yeah. I think that's like the chance for pricing pressure and rig count to go up. But like absent that stuff, it seems like a lull of like, stick to what you're good at. Yeah. Keep plugging away. Maybe you don't need to ramp up. And these are just our opinions with our scratchy, broken crystal balls. But like, I guess that's the vibe. I don't know. Again, same thing without trying to predict political things and what could happen. And then what happens if that happens? Like as we stand today, like you said, the markets really aren't responding to a bunch of this geopolitical risk, which I guess maybe is because even though all this stuff has happened, it hasn't really put a dent on supply. So maybe just structurally things haven't moved much because really it hasn't. And then you've got bunch of the other countries being able to fill the gaps. Like there's a lot of supply available, I guess. So maybe that's why it's not quite doing things. I don't know. Look at the issues in Guyana, right? Where Venezuela is claiming terror. Another thing that could. Yeah. Like there's just all of these sort of things that on speculation alone, you'd think might create a little bit of concern about supply risk. Like the Red Sea thing, everybody keeps talking about. Yeah. Like Maersk has said, we're not sending ships through there right now. Right. And yeah, the U.S. military is over there and there's been some stuff to secure that. But maybe the one thing that I failed to mention as well is, yeah, these folks are tied to, you know, the Houthis are affiliated with Iran. Well, like, think about it. Guess what they shoot their weaponry at? It's container ships. It's not oil tankers. Yeah. Because they're not conspicuously enough. They'll let their friends through. Like even that has nuances and details that make it very difficult to predict and understand. But like a lot of conflicts, you know, hey, if you do this to me, I do this to you. Well, I need to do something bigger so you don't do it again. Well, now you did something bigger, so I have to respond with something even bigger. And yeah, these things become far broader than anybody anticipated. Obviously, there's a human factor to that first and foremost. And then there's kind of our line of work. Yeah. Implications there. Yeah. The Red Sea thing has been fascinating. I've been just, again, watching it mainly from Twitter and a couple sources that I look at, well, some podcasts that hit it on the high notes. But I guess like 12% of global trade goes through the Red Sea in terms of maritime trade. Suez Canal, it's a big deal, right? Right. It could be super inflationary if things do get wild mm-hmm. with all of these things getting halted there. The cost to ship goods to sort of bypass that. 
And Camp Panama Canal traffic is limited due to drought there. It's like a house of cards right now. Yeah. There's like a few kind of getting blown around, but nothing's like completely class. So yeah. to your point, it's like these black swan events, like that could be one of them all of a sudden that happens. But as it stands today, you're looking at operators and just some of the public people that have come out, it's like profits over growth still. It's kind of nice. We're sitting good and we're in the position to withstand some of that volatility because you know, we haven't like spent a bunch of money to deploy a bunch of capital and from the U.S., I think we're sitting good. Whether if it goes up, well, we've got great capacity because we're only like six something, 600 and something. But if things kind of get sideways and maybe we tickle 60 and go into the 50s, well, it's not like we've put our nose over the tips of our skis, I think is what they say mm. in Canada. But yeah, who knows? Again, crystal balls shattered all the time. But at the end of the day, I'm excited for 2024. And the reality is if you look at the data today, supply is good. Demand should hopefully grow again. I don't think we're going to peak this year, which means we need to drill for more oil and gas. we got plenty of work to do. That's the short of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Matt, speaking of the kind of outlook and things where we're at, what's your sort of take on demand, say gasoline and a few of these other macro topics that people keep to hang their hat on? It was really interesting. I don't know if you follow Javier Bloss on Twitter. Yes. Highly recommend. Yeah. So he wrote a book called The World for Sale about commodity traders and that sort of thing. Okay. And he's a good writer. I think that, you know, when we talk, you always hear energy transition and stuff. And my big eye roll is energy transition to what? Like affordable energy is what matters. And the reason that we believe we still are going to have day jobs well into the future is because oil and gas is an affordable source of energy that the world needs. And there isn't a good substitute or we would be using it already. A lot of times he sort of follows these narratives of, hey, EV growth is going to ultimately eliminate the need for a lot of these things. Gasoline, transportation fuel. There was very much an expectation this year, gasoline fuel demand would diminish considerably. Mm, right. And he basically wrote an article like, well, I was wrong. In fact, it's higher than ever. Yeah. And it goes back to a few different things, I think, that haven't fit the narrative. I think one is everybody, even the question of like, oh, if you got everybody to drive an EV, like you look at countries like Norway that have adopted a ton of EVs, their oil consumption didn't go down precipitously. Transportation fuels are a big hydrocarbon user, but you still have to charge them with energy. There's all kinds of other logistical issues. And I think that goes back to even seeing that EV sales are really struggling. And there's a couple of different schools of thought. One is that the people who really want an EV already got one. If you're a Tesla enthusiast, you love the car, the technology, what have you. And, and I know a couple of people. I know a couple of people who've done really well in oil and gas who are very passionate about their Tesla. Yeah, likewise. Um, there's things with that where they say, oh man, I had a great trip to Dallas. How often do you have to charge? Well, I kind of see it as a great time to take a break. And I'm like, oh, okay. So yeah, you know, you program in and find the charging station and then hang out or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, I don't really want to do that. They're like, no, it's part of the driving experience or whatever. And it's like, okay, that's good for you, but I don't think that's good for most. Right. And then there's the anxiety of the charging station doesn't work and all this other kind of mess. Mm. I think most of the people who are willing to overlook those things or consider it being part of the future got their car. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Everybody else you hear, you know, Ford, the big fanfare with the F-150 Lightning, they've said, look, we're cutting production like. They're sitting on lots longer than ever, and yep. they're pretty expensive. And then the cost of ownership, you read these stories, but now you're reading how expensive it is to insure a vehicle because the same thing is true. I mean, think about all these cool features cars have now, and then this is beyond EVs. This is like lane change assist, all this stuff, and 
I will be looking to replace my 2014 Hyundai Santa Fe Sport in the not too distant future. Oh boy. And this is exciting, but it's like before somebody like rear ends you at a light and just damages your bumper and you get another bumper. Yeah. Now there's a bunch of sensors in that thing. Oh yeah. The average cost for EVs, which have fewer parts, which means you're replacing a bigger piece. Right. It's like four grand or something. So a bunch of these cars are getting totaled with, with like for like damage. relatively minor damage. Interesting. Because okay. the batteries are integral to the body frame. It helps with weight distribution and all these other things. But huh. it also means there's not like easy places to cut things off and weld or you got to take out a module and replace it. No kidding. You're starting to see some of the like harsh reality where it's like, yeah, an EV would be more reliable because it's got fewer parts. But that means each part costs more and therefore costs more to replace. Yeah. I think that the harsh reality of the ideal state of everybody liking these things and being able to charge in their homes and blah, blah, blah. And then you're seeing like your average consumer being like, I'm not ready to change behavior based on what I'm seeing. Right. People want more gasoline than ever. Right. There's more coal capacity. There's like three times the amount of coal capacity being installed than there is nuclear right now. Like the physics still matters. Mm -hmm. The narratives aren't fitting. And I think that you're seeing some of the groans of some of that where the way governments have sold this idea of we can do it together and everything can run off a windmill is a very easy story to sell the vi the optics and everything. And now we're up against the reality of yeah. like, this is a lot harder than what I was told it was going to be. Yeah. And, and when you look at the business models, when a company and a business is in place, it's to make money. And then this has always been told, but even now is more so than ever with the high interest rates. And then on top of that, like if you look at the return on capital employed for a lot of these new energy or companies, they just don't make that much money. And so it's like, is that a sustainable business model for the long run? That's a whole nother piece to it is it's like you need a road to profitability. And yeah. if you're not going to have one, it's going to be very hard to scale and then make it available to the consumer because we always want cheaper stuff. Mm -hmm. When you look at like the physics side and then you look at like, okay, a company has to be in business to make money. Well, that's not happening very much. You're kind of at a sticky point right now. And so it's tough to say, like, is there going to be mass adoption, scale and solar and wind and everything else? Like, I'm a firm believer it's the, all the above approach. To your point, I don't think it's going to scale. And I don't think that, like, the level of growth is going to be quite there, like a lot of people were hoping. Yeah. And look, pointing the mirror at our own industry, I did a paper a little while ago just exhibiting a little bit of... I don't know, cynicism might not be the right word, although I'm pretty cynical. Just looking at geothermal, where oh, everybody yeah. started a geothermal business unit. And it's like, okay, and look, in a way, these are things that I don't necessarily, like, I have my whole, like, libertarian streak or whatever, but I don't necessarily mind having the government support a few of these things for the purposes of proving out a concept. Right. That can then be taken by a startup and commercialized or whatever. Like, fine, whatever, but... There's only so much hot rock. There's only so much viable hot rock. Yeah. There's a lot of science projects, but like geothermal is never going to be as big as the oil and gas industry until we run out of oil. There's just not that many places where it makes sense to do it, given the cost of infrastructure and all these other things. There are some great places to do it, but guess what? They've already been doing it. <laughs> I think that there's a ton of knowledge and things we could do to accelerate geothermal, which has been heavily neglected. But there's another side of it where the reason it's been neglected from a technology perspective is they do everything on the cheap. They drill with water. Like everything is focused on 
limiting their costs even more so to an extreme than what we see in the oil field, even to the point where you see people getting grants to design directional tools that are good to 600 degrees or 800 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, guess what? They drill those wells already with like conventional stuff and just keep it as cool as possible till it breaks. Yeah. And they found ways to do it. Like they're innovative within their, but like they're not going to pay $3,000 a day for your tool. Right. They never were. I just think there's a lot of distorted markets and distorted narrative. Mm. And I think maybe the end of this year is sort of pointed out like the world isn't as aligned as we want it to be. It never will be. There's always going to be competing interests. There's always going to be, we can call it good and bad actors or whatever you want to call it, but there's always going to be different interests and people are going to fight for those. Yeah. There's way more to this. And I think we're seeing more of the fracturing of the narrative than we have in a while. Yeah, no, I like the way Arjun Murdy put it. He, uh, the crash and burn wake up call is upon us. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, obviously now this year we've got, everyone knows we've got a big election coming up. That could change slightly the trajectory. I think the trajectory is probably going to stay somewhat similar as it was or as it's been. But yeah, I'm sure that could throw a wrench in a lot of things. But with us, especially we've been mainly talking about on the oil side, again, it's not going anywhere. And so for those out there who maybe you do pay attention a lot of it, but Maybe you're sitting there and you've seen rig count kind of drop. To me, I think we're kind of at the bottom or we're slowly scratching our way out. So I'm pretty optimistic about this year. And then on the natural gas side, I don't think this warm weather is helping much. Our storage levels are like way above or at the almost the top of the five-year average. So there's a lot of gas in storage and we haven't had to use a lot. But the outlook for that, it's pretty positive. I mean, what's kind of your thoughts around the whole natural gas side of things? I mean, it's all about LNG. There was the news that Chenier is going to go down a train in one of their facilities. Okay. But their whole argument was economics. We can get it done with two. There's a lot of discussions on moving LNG around. Domestically, it's quite interesting because we can sell it overseas for a heck of a lot more than we can sell here. Other than, like you said, these cold weather fluctuations, that's what my energy trading friends get to do and they do very well doing it. Yeah, I bet. My gosh. Uh, <laughs> can sense a little envy there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> everything you read is the next couple of years are going to be quite interesting because you're having these guaranteed contracts for pricing. And we talked about this, Justin and I do a little post game. We just talk about whatever's going on in the world off the mic. Yeah. And it's interesting. If you're listening and you're curious about this, you should look up how these contracts are structured for gas volumes because a lot of them will index to a different gas market. We've talked about these in different episodes, but like JKM, which is an Asian natural gas price, which is normally considerably more than Henry Hub, which is what we kind of use in the US as our benchmark. Mm-hmm. It'll be indexed to that. So it means, okay, well, if it's only worth three bucks here, but I can sell it for eight over there, and that's my contract price, and then they can sell it with cover the cost of transportation and get it over there. That's a pretty good deal. I'm pretty well assured a healthy profit. And yeah. so there's a lot of interest in establishing these long-term contracts that are associated with that. Sometimes they'll be 50% that and 50% of Henry Hub. And thing is, Henry Hub is generally cheap, which hurts a lot of our feelings in the US. But then you'll see these spikes when things happen. And you can catch spot prices where it shoots up to 10 or $11. And mm-hmm. you get some of that. And then it goes back down. Yeah. But they're sort of diversified in a way where it matters less what we're paying in the US. Yeah. Gas is interesting. Most of the publications out there are saying, you know, it's the fuel of the future and this and that. And obviously here in the U.S., we're sitting on a ton of it, along with a lot of other parts of the world. But there was a recent company, was it a company out of Tokyo, I think, came and bought a U.S. company 
you had posted it in our internal messaging system. Do you remember the name of the company? Yeah, they bought Hainesville Assets. Yeah. And I honestly can't remember the name. They already had some. They just increased it. And I guess yeah. where I was going with that is I just wonder if, because they're essentially securing their own supply instead of having to depend on us domestically here. And then- Yeah, they don't have to buy it from anybody. Right. I wonder if that's a trend that may- continuing to follow as people from all over the world that don't maybe sit on their own gas who are like, I'm going to come in and buy up some Haynesville or some Marcellus or heck, maybe even some Permian because of all the gas they pump out of there, which arguably there's some bottlenecks. But I think there was another pipeline that just got FID'd bringing a ton, like I think like three BCF a day out of the Permian into the Gulf Coast. But anyway, I just wonder if that's going to, you're going to see over the next few years, a lot of international money pour into here for natural gas. I think there's a chance of it. I think some of it you'd already seen. Golly, which book was it? I want to say the Frackers. It was either the Frackers or I'm old and I can't remember the names of books I read anymore. But (laughs) another one kind of from the early shale days. Okay. Talking about all of the chemical companies that set up on the Gulf Coast Uh from overseas, Chinese companies, a lot of others, because natural gas feedstock was so cheap and expected to be cheap and abundant for a very long time. And I think if you look at the story of Europe, you know, people say, hey, look, they weathered the whole Russia thing pretty well. And it's like, yeah, except for you look at Germany's energy consumption. Mm -hmm. And the narrative was they effectively industrialized. They shut down whole industries that were dependent on energy. And they either went to China or I know of a few stories of like chemical reactors being sent from Germany to the U.S. Oh, wow. That's normally a one-way trip. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Just based off of the bandwidth to do it here. I think there is a fair amount of truth to that. I think like if you haven't read the prize, you need to read the prize because there's so much in there. When I worked in Indonesia, it was amazing. Like you could put a hole in the ground and get natural gas. Mm. The problem was you needed to get to a market. What was so fascinating though is that like the Japanese who – have always been short of energy resources, hence their abundant nuclear power and that sort of thing. They would sign a deal for like 20 years for whatever natural gas, like 250 at the time, and they would buy it for seven and guarantee it for 20 years. It was like, this is insane. Like you've capitalized my whole project. And they're like, we just need the security. Yeah. I think a lot of that Western Australia stuff, Wheatstone and Prelude, like those projects were heavily dependent on the fixed guaranteed contracts coming out of Asia. Yeah. And I think LNG coming out of the US is like the surprise story where if you read any of those books, first we were going to run out of gas and then it was, oh shoot, what are we going to do with all this gas? Yeah. Turn the LNG train around and sell it. And Qatar obviously has plenty of it. There's other countries. But I think that may level the price out a bit more, Mm -hmm. but it's good for us because it's probably still going to be more than what we pay domestically. Right. I mean, right now it's, I think, close to 15% of our gas production is exported, which is, I mean, we're at an all-time high on a few different things, but it's interesting to see it's sitting on, I mean, when you look back at it, it's fascinating to see what the whole shale revolution has done to just global energy markets. Yeah. It's fascinating. And the cool thing, well, I guess cooler, depending on how you look at it from a market share standpoint, but there's still a lot of places who haven't adopted unconventional technology. A lot of places in the world still drill conventional. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's like the UK probably has a huge gas reserve, it's estimated, but there's absolutely no way just given the European attitude towards hydraulic fracturing. Yeah. Russia's got a ton of gas, obviously. China's looking, it sounds like a lot of that is pretty deep. It makes it marginal. But there are definitely other places. Well, like Venezuela, I heard, sits on the biggest, is it the biggest oil reserve in the world? It's massive. Which is insane. Yeah. 
yeah, it's crazy to see what else is out there. But I mean, it's not all going to be developed this year. So again, I think U.S. shale is going to be pretty resilient. Anything else, Matt? I know we kind of just been bouncing around here and just kind of bantering, but I think it's a good way to kick the year off. Just some thought provoking topics, you know? I guess the big picture is right. Like neither one of us is experts. I hate to speak Far for you too it. broadly, Justin. No, <laughs> please. Yeah. I'm the first one to admit. There are just some really interesting stories. I mean, like this isn't something I like, I don't invest money in hopes that these things turn out to be true or anything like that. Yeah. But they're interesting I to do. follow and bet on yourself, man. I don't know. No, no. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> but big picture, it's interesting to see these narratives. And speaking of which, we should have Josh Young back on and kind of That'd get his fun. 2024 view. Yes. A cool outlook. He's super dialed in. I mean, he can speak to all these things much deeper than myself. But yeah, if you've been listening long enough, we've had Josh on, I think twice. I think twice. Yeah. Yeah. Just highly respected and just lives and breathes this stuff. And it's always fun to hear him talk and his outlook on things. And then again, the way he challenges narratives too, I think is great. Yeah, I think we should definitely do that. And again, I think for us too, is it's a goal, at least for me, it's all this stuff affects rig count at the end of the day. You know, it affects the oil and gas industry here in the U.S. And so it's fun to just kind of read as much as you can to educate yourself and and then it makes for good conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It is also one of those, though, you think about it, like there is the like, man, what's going to be like next year or what's it going to be like this year? And then there's the fact that like, if you do what we do, like Derek's got to be in the air whatever I think it's going to do or whatever until the mass is raised. Yeah. It's just us talking, right? Exactly. So no, great conversation. Appreciate it. And if any of the listeners out there have any thoughts or want to challenge some of the stuff that we think we know, then be happy to and ask some questions. You can hit us up on LinkedIn. You can reach us at the Flowline podcast at aesflues.com. And yeah, just make sure you reach out, connect and keep following along. We're into some good stuff this year and looking forward to hearing from some folks until next time. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.